Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today we're going to welcome Mike James, an author and better known as UK Mike, on a lot of classic gaming web forums. Now before I get started, I want to acknowledge that we're having a slight shift in tone with this particular episode. I like to embrace creativity and positivity on this show, and UK Mike has done something extremely creative, and it is very positive. However, the situation that created it was not positive. UK Mike is the author of a book that details a scandal that took place in the classic video game community about five years ago. And during this episode, we're going to talk about things like lies, betrayal, deception, and quite frankly, crimes that were committed. So it's not positive that these things happened. It is positive what happened after these things happened. The community became stronger as a result of it, and the hobby grew to be more aware of such scandals. And Mike has created a great book as a result of it. So without further ado, let's get started. On tap today, we have Mike James, better known as UK Mike. How are you doing today? Good, sir. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Yeah. Mike, you are the author of a book called Smoke and Mirrors, and that book uh, details a lot of uh, the Coleco Chameleon saga. And if you'll, you'll pardon me for a minute, my audience right now is divided into two groups. There is the people who know this in and out and are eager for us to get into this, mm-hmm. and the other people are like, what's the Coleco Chameleon? Is that some Power Ranger monster? So yeah. l- let me give them a really quick major overview, and then you can give the details, all right? Okay, sounds good. Okay. The Coleco Chameleon, also known as the Retro Video Game System, was the brainchild of a guy named Mike Kennedy, who's had this idea to make a brand new cartridge-based video game system as a small company. The problem was he didn't know how to do it. Um, He tried to raise a lot of money, released four prototypes, all of which were completely fake and was generally a really, really big scandal in the retro gaming community. So that I think people have enough background info. What would you say to that, Mike? I think your audience is probably um, indicative of the general public, because, I mean, to those that were either involved or following along, you know, this thing was like a soap opera for months, you know, mm-hmm. o- over a year of our, of our lives, really. But it never really broke the mainstream. So I, I think, you know, it, it's... The book kind of takes that into account and starts off really slow and kind of gives some background on the whole story. You know, it's a long book. There is a lot of information in there. So somebody going into this story cold can just pick the book up and read it and figure out everything that's going on because it is laid out for them. There's a lot of value in that because I tried to just put in the bare essentials in that description there. But you said it was a soap opera. And it started off so innocent and so positive because people were like, okay, I I could somebody, a regular average Joe wants to make a video game system. I I don't know why, but I want to see where this goes. And again, four different prototypes were made, all of which were massively fraudulent. And people started to say, what are you doing to me here? Yeah, well, the book kind of defines it as three prototypes. There were, it's arguable, you know, there were... Um, pictures of circuit boards sent out and mm. that was people said oh that's a prototype board but there were three real defined prototypes mm. um but, personally uh, i count the john carlson prototype but that's just me 
And no, that is that is what I would term the first one, which was the retro VGS. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it was the same idea, but really a different project with a different team when they moved into the Coleco Chameleon. But um, I think, like you said, something you said reminded me there. You know, Mike was already in the community. You know, he'd been a member on Atari Age for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'd done projects that were good. You know, he'd, he'd created Game Gavel and various uh, spin-off sites. And he tried to build what he called, you know, his, his Game Gavel network, um, all under Game Gavel LLC. And he wanted to create something that, you know, gamers could could get some use out of. And he and he did do some good and interesting sites. And, and the book covers all of those little projects. And then this console thing came along, you know, after Retro Magazine. And, you know, another thing that people, you know... The audience was hit and miss on, you know, the quality of the magazine. Some liked it, some didn't. But he tried to do the right thing. Uh, behind the scenes, it was very different, of course. But, um, yeah, the book kind of lays all that out. It goes through. Um, and, and to people who are familiar with Mike and the whole story, the first few chapters uh, may be a little background information they didn't know, maybe some filler, maybe they just want to skip to the console part. Uh, but... What you'll see is it, it covers Mike, uh, and this is not a hit piece, by the way, uh, mm. this book. Um, it covers Mike's progress from, you know, his first auction site, Chase the, Chasing the Chuck Wagon, uh, which he rebranded later to Game Gavel. And it goes through all the various projects, some of which came to fruition, some of which didn't. But the reason all that's included is because you'll start to see some patterns of behavior. And you'll start to see things that will, if you're familiar with the story, will trigger something and you think yeah i saw that in the console um, phase and you know these patterns of behavior the same buzzwords um the mike kennedy business model you know that's all kind of founded uh, a few years earlier and and the the beginning of the book covers all of that like i uh remember from my early early collecting days uh the three of us were actually on the original the usenet group rec games video dot classic um, and I didn't know you that well. You, I, he didn't know me that well or anything. But um, Mike was there, too. And I never had any ill will toward him. I'm not here to talk to you because I just want to gossip about the guy. But mm-hmm. there just became this point where it was like you've given us so much. You promised so much and delivered so little. And you're actually angry at us for asking questions. And that's the part where I personally really got upset where it was like, you're we're asking very valid questions from somebody from whom you're asking hundreds of dollars, if not more, and you're giving us nothing. Yeah, and you know, Mike started out with good intentions and, and the, the full title of the book is Smoke and Mirrors, The Rise and Fall of a Serial Entrepreneur. And it, it covers, you know, his rise and fall as as the name will suggest and, and it like I said, it covers some of the good things that he did. And you'll kind of you'll get a feel for where things kind of changed and where those good intentions maybe became less so. Although I always think he wanted to produce a video game console, he just didn't have either the money or the skills to do it himself. And that's where, you know, other people who came onto the project came in. He needed them. Uh, He couldn't do it himself. I don't think he was an out-and-out scammer. A lot of people accuse him of that. Um, He did, genuinely, in my opinion want to create a video game console sell it to the public and make a name for himself in the video game industry the retro community and i think that was as important to him as as the money was 
Um, although, you know, we're all familiar with the kind of money we were talking, you know, the, the Kickstarter for the Camille, uh, for the, sorry, the Indiegogo for the retro VGS was just shy of $2 million. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're talking a lot of money, but I think the fame and the notoriety was as important to him as the money was. I, I think I can definitely see your point there. And I personally, I mean, I've called it a scam many times. I won't say that I haven't, but I definitely see where you're coming from and that he did actually want to produce something. I guess my thought always goes back to if you want to produce something and know that you don't have the resources to do it, but yet you're taking money for it, does that functionally become the same as a scam or is there still a distinction there? Um, I think it the, the reader is going to have to decide Okay. for themselves what you know their opinion is whether they thought it was an out and out scam whether they thought he was just taken for a ride i mean he, he was scammed by a known scammer but you know what did he ask this mysterious sean robinson for you know did he ask sean for a genuine prototype and sean scammed him or did he ask sean for a fake that was good enough to get on kickstarter which is exactly what sean delivered it was a fake mm-hmm. um and there's, there's a conversation very early on. You know, like I said, this isn't a hit piece. Um, I lay out all the facts. You can make up your own mind. My opinion uh, will become clear by the time you finish the book. But there's a, there are several conversations in the book that will point you in a certain direction. And one of those was very early on with Clay Cowgill. Uh, because this thing didn't just start as the retro VGS. There was an iteration, an iteration before that. And it was called the Back in Time console. And Scott Schreiber, who's also a host on Retro Gaming Roundup with me, co-host, co-founder, along with Mike Kennedy, uh, was involved in in those um, planning calls for the Back in Time console, as, as was I. And we were talking to people like Phil Adams, Steve Woiter, uh, Ed Freeze from you know the Xbox uh, team who brought us the first Microsoft Xbox. So... There were industry luminaries in in these calls and the back in time console kind of well that's where you learn some of the mike kennedy business model we you know we stopped getting those calls and it, it went away for a while and then it came back as the retro vgs and um mike was flaky on the details whether intentional or not you know he said he went to clay cowgill who then brought sean robinson in uh, Clay sees it differently, he says Mike and Sean were already working on it when they brought me in. And Clay Cowgill, uh, you may know the man, uh, you may know his name. You know, he, he is an engineer by trade. He, he's co-owner of the Ground Control uh, Barcade in Portland. He's well known in the community and he can build, uh, design, build, and manufacture and ship a complete product. And Mike went to him for some ideas of, you know, how, how much would it cost to make this and how long will it take? And Clay came back to him with the figure, you're looking about $70,000. And I think it was about 14 weeks, something like that, just to get to a finished prototype stage. And Clay's point that he made, he posted it in in Atari Age, was um, the project suddenly turned to, well, what can we do to get on Kickstarter? And Clay's words were actually, um, it it turned into a smoke and mirrors approach. That's where the title of the book comes from. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of leads you down the road towards Mike, you know, maybe he did ask Sean for a fake, fake prototype and got exactly what he asked for. 
and that and I, I'm trying not to I don't want to give away too many details because I'm sure the book is definitely going to give me all all the, the facts that I'm really going to need. But the, those from my own memory of the the events. And by the way, I didn't know anything about the back in time console. That's a new chapter for me. And that alone justifies kickstarting the book for me. Uh, but just that was kind of what I always looked at is when I heard about Mike talking about building the prototype and the timeline and the money involved, me knowing very little about the industry, I could already tell that he was not basing any of this in reality. What he, the money he was asking for was not connected to what I would expect those product costs to be at all, much less the timeline, much less the talent. None of it ever made sense. And when you brought that up to Mike, you would just get, hey, just wait, you'll see. Yeah, and, and the, the money's an interesting thing. You know, Mike said at one time, nobody can produce um, a prototype uh, console with an FPGA. Uh, if you don't know what an FPGA is, it's covered in the book, don't worry. Um, when we get technical, we do lay it out for you know the layman to easily understand what we're talking about. And Mike would, would say uh, that nobody can do it cheaper than us. Um, Kevin Horton did it. <laughs> Kevin Horton's continuing to do it with with his uh, you know range of consoles. Uh, the money was the uh, it was just short of two million dollars. The Indiegogo for the retro VGS, something like 1.95 million. That was a number that they got to by um, adding up what they needed. You know, it it was renting offices. It was salary for three people working on the project at the time. It was all sorts of other things that just weren't connected to the actual mechanics of producing a video game console. It, it was kind of, it's like a policeman thinking, well, you did it and I'll make the evidence fit the fact that you did it rather than following the evidence or the money to where it leads you, you know? Um, mm -hmm. It can be done much more cheaply. It has been done much more cheaply. Now, whether Mike believed it or whether Mike was told it and repeated it, you know, you'll have to have to find out, I guess. Yeah, and that was that. It's just so odd that you somebody would just say nobody can do it better than us when technology is changing all the time. It's always getting smaller, faster, cheaper, and every layman knows this. People such as yourselves and Clay and and all, anybody else in the project would point that out and say, you know, six months from now it's a whole different story, regardless of whether you're even telling the truth now. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting you say you know the details kept changing, technology changes, and uh, you know there's a figure in the book. Uh, called John Carlson, and he was much maligned at the time. Uh, at the time he was on it because he produced, you know, that regrettable video, the Retro VGS Lab. Um, and people mocked him. Mike uh, put much of the blame for the failure of that Indiegogo on him, uh, which is a part of the Mike Kennedy business model. That's just what he does. You know, when you're on your way out, you're blamed for all the failures. And we move on to the next engineer and repeat to him everything that the previous one has told us. Uh, but I, I spoke to John Carlson, uh, I think two or three times while doing the research for this book. Um, I think he's a credible engineer. He has made products. I've spoken to other uh, respected people in the community and in the industry. People like Rebecca Heinemann, I spoke to at Portland, uh, Retro Gaming Expo. And we were talking about John Carlson and the whole project. Uh, got a couple of interesting details about her, which are, uh, from her, which are in the book. And she couldn't say enough good things about John. But, um, you know, the the details were constantly changing for him. You know, Mike and Steve Reuter were the two guys left on the team at this stage. Clay Cowgill had walked away. Sean Robinson was maybe somewhere in the background in the mist somewhere. We don't know. And John Carlson was the engineer. But 
Mike was constantly saying we want it to do this, we want it to do that, we want Bluetooth controllers. And so just that one thing, Mike saying we want the controllers to be Bluetooth. And John would say to him, well, okay, in that case, we need to up our CPU, we need to up our RAM, you know, we need to change this on the board, that on the board, it's going to cost this much extra. Which is why, you know, Mike was throwing out the number in the early days of this console is going to be $150. And they ended up nearly $400 for a console. And that's that's why they ended up there. And that's why John Carlson simply couldn't produce anything because every time he did, something changed. And, it, you know, that's it was just a crazy environment that, that he was working in. And that's something that I people don't seem to get when they deal with tech, either as a buyer or as a seller, is that you make decisions based on what you assume are the facts. You, you start out from saying, what do we, we, you want to find one fact that is not going to change that you know you need, and you build off from that, whether that be a feature, whether that be a price, whether that be a look, but there, there has to be something you start with that never changes, and that seemed to never be the case with the chameleon. No, uh, it was constantly changing, and of course, the, the other consideration they had was, of course, Mike Kennedy bought the molds for the Atari Jaguar. And, you know, the again, that detail is all in, in the book, how much he paid, you know, um, where that money came from, where they ended up, because that was all a, a murky business, possibly corporate fraud, depending if, if you're interested in looking into it mm -hmm. to that depth. Um, but um, that that Jaguar shell, you know, Mike, Mike bought them. And, and that was that was it. You know, as far as Mike was concerned, um, I've had this video game console idea. I've got an engineer and I've got the shells. We're, we're almost there. You know, that was the way he thought. But, you know, just using those shells created problems in, in themselves for the for, you know, John Carlson at, at that stage and others later to to work within the confines of. Early on in the project, I think it might have even been in the early retro VGS era, there was a, a podcast released with Mike discussing the things they were doing because they had the Jaguar shells, and, and that kind of disappeared early on. I had to really dig to find it, actually, but he was speaking as if, you know, they were talking about the, the depth of the contact metal, and they, they were talking about real details that you'd think would mean they'd already had the thing hammered out and ready to go, and when you find out six months later that even the the basic board wasn't designed yet you're like well, what were you talking about six months ago it, it was just amazing that the jaguar shells really became the only thing that ever was concrete yeah well when you're talking about things like that and that kind of detail early on um i would i would have a guess that that would have come from clay cowgill so what mike would do he'd get an engineer um like clay early on he wouldn't pay them because he didn't have the money to pay them so they would either be paid in future perceived value, as he called it. So he'd give them shares in, in his company or he'd start a new company and give them shares in that. And they they would talk to him, have discussions about the, the console, about the design. And, and so a technical detail like that would come from the engineer. And that was it. Mike had a new buzzword. And every interview Mike did, every post he made on Facebook, every tweet he did, that information would be in there and then a new engineer would come along and he'd repeat all these buzzwords to the new engineer and they would think oh this guy knows what he's talking about and then he would learn new more new buzzwords and repeat those and and that was it you know a, a great example is um you know some of the details that mike would use without understanding them 
was something like he talked about Unity. So at, at one time, the the console was going to run games built on Unity, and it was going to have the hardware and software to support them. Uh, but he also knew phrases like "back to the uh, close to the metal," sorry, which the Atari 2600, something like that, had. Mm-hmm. You know, you turn on the Atari, there's no software on there, there's no operating system, all the code is in the cartridge, and it runs literally on the processor. You know, when those guys wrote those games, they wrote them in assembler, and so that code is running right on the processor, close to the metal. Uh, um, and so Mike would then do interviews and talk about. Well, this console is going to run Unity close to the metal, which just makes absolutely no sense, no sense and just shows his lack of understanding in, in what he was being told, but would happily repeat to everyone who'd listen. Okay. Um, now, since we're talking about stuff that makes no sense, I, I, I want to get away from Mike in a minute, but I, I have to ask this because uh, it, there was a big thing, a minor spoiler, if you follow the story, you probably are knows, at the New York Toy Fair... The prototype Mike had then was an Atari Jaguar shell with a Super Nintendo inside of it. This was like the moment where it's like nobody could argue that this was fake anymore. There, there was no spin you could put on it that would come out favorably for Mike. Um, and he had made the point really specifically that you the cartridge that somebody gave him, those Super Nintendo cartridge, didn't have the extra pins on the side, which he would expect to see. Uh, because some Super Nintendos have a full range of uh, games, have a full range of pins, some do not. And he was like, oh, this won't work on there. And it was surprised that it did. And I'm like, you should know this. A Super Nintendo is not an uncommon system. The pin connector is, it's a very unique shape that anybody who's looked at one once will recognize. Do you think he was honestly surprised by that? Or was he just bloviating? So that, that is one of many key questions in the book. And the reader will have to make up their mind on it. Um, I'll lay the facts out for you and you can make your own mind up. Um, I have my opinion, but, you know, although my opinion will sort of become clear, it's not I'm not ramming this down your throat and saying this Mm -hmm. is what happened. That's what happened. Here are, you know, the events. Here are the facts. So Mike. And the night before he left uh, home for the New York Toy Fair, Sean Robinson delivered that prototype to his house. Said, be very careful with it. It's very fragile. It keeps resetting. As long as you're careful with it, it will get you through the Toy Fair. When you get back, we'll look at why and we'll deal with it. Um, But he gave very specific instructions. Don't show anyone the back of the console. And so Mike put it in a case and took it to New York, put it in the booth, and if you remember at the New York Toy Fair, it was hidden under a, a Perspex box. You couldn't actually get to touch the console, and they kind of kept it um, away from prying hands, hoping to stop the resets, or just for display purposes, I don't know. So Mike was in a situation where he'd be playing a game uh, to demo it to somebody in the booth, and the console would just randomly reset. It should reboot, and then it would it would come back on and it would play again for a few minutes and then it would reboot again. And so he had a problem with it. And then it started um, to kind of leak out, you know. He did take a picture of the back of the console. He did put those pictures out. And people started to try to work out what it was. And it became clear very soon after he posted those pictures 
that what he had in there was a Super Nintendo Mini. Uh, also, not to be confused with this, the um, recent, you know, mini version that um, runs 30 games or whatever. Uh, this was the mini version of the original Super Nintendo, sometimes called um, a Super Nintendo Junior. And the back of the console looked exactly like the back of one of those. And what he ha also showed off was the cartridge he was using. You know, there's a, a video of him holding it. This is our prototype cartridge. This is um, uh, what it is. And again, it had a piece of tape uh, over it, trying to cover details. But it was worked out that what that was, was a Super Nintendo flash cartridge called the SD2SNES. Uh, it was made by uh, a manufacturer and sold by Stone Age Gamer. Now, don't want to get too technical, but basically some of the Super Nintendo games had extra chips in the cartridges to make them do more impressive things. Something like F-Zero, Mario Kart, uh, ran something called Mode 7. And you needed extra hardware in the cartridge to run those games in kind of almost a 3D environment, but not really. And to do that, the SD to SNES needed a lot of power. It could do it, it could run those games, but it needed a lot of power, namely an official Nintendo power supply. Otherwise, you know, the game would try and run some really complex routine. There wouldn't be enough power to uh, allow the processor in the card to do that and the system would reset. So that was another clue to exactly what he was running in there. You know, this wasn't, as he said, um, a prototype cartridge that his engineer had built. It was a publicly available product. And he knew what it was, you know. Um, Scott, who's a host on our podcast, does a, a segment there called the Hardware Flashback. And he bought one of these things from Stone Age Gamer. He'd found this problem because he was running it in uh, a Superboy console, which is basically a handheld SNES. And he was seeing those same resets. So he contacted this, the seller and said, you know, is this faulty? He said, no, that's expected behavior. Get a better power supply, should be fine. And so everyone was posting this, you know, it was on Atari age, people were posting it on Facebook. Mike was reading it and deleting it. So you get to kind of Saturday afternoon of New York Toy Fair and Mike is there with his console. It keeps resetting. People are saying it's a Super Nintendo Junior. People are saying he's got an SD to and so he's in a position then, show closes on Saturday, what does he do? Does he have a look inside? Does he know what he's looking at if he does look inside? Is he fully aware that he's got, a, you know, of what he's got, that it's a fake? And, you know, if he does take it apart, will it break for the Sunday? And so that kind of steers you down a road, you know, he, he knew he had a problem. People were telling him what the problem was. What he had on his hands was not a, an original prototype. And he continued on with the show saying it was. So draw your own conclusions from that. <laughs> and it, for the again, for the benefit of the people who don't really follow this stuff like you and I do, mm -hmm. the Super Nintendo Junior is not a super rare item to have, but it is considerably less common than the standard Super Nintendo released in 1992 with the the big rectangular purple buttons on there it's you're not going to see it every day no but and, ironically sorry okay. to interrupt but ironically mike later posted um, a picture 
kind of late on. I think we're probably in the chameleon days, or maybe it had just failed, and he and he tweeted a picture, and it was basically his his front room setup. So his big TV's there. He's got, I think, a PS3 or probably then um, under there, and then right at the side of that is the Super Nintendo Junior. Now, mm-hmm. conspiracy theorists will say Mike used his own in the prototype or Sean told him to use his own in the prototype. Others will say it's just coincidence. I don't know. That, you know, and that's that's one of the problems that I had with the book, you know. Um, I didn't interview Mike for the book, and I tried to get some answers off Sean Robinson, who would pretend to be helpful and then would just not reply when anything was needed from him. So let's just say I had spoken to them. Both of them have been found to be liars and so if i ask mike a question at some point he has to lie Mm -hmm. because he's committed crimes (laughs) and he would be knowingly defrauding the public and so at some point he has to lie and we know sean robinson lies um he's got a criminal history yes he paid his dues and you know everyone deserves a clean start but i don't think his behavior changed too much personally and so both of them are proven liars. And so if you ask them those specific questions you're looking for answers to, you cannot believe the answers you're going to get back. So you kind of just have to draw your own conclusions from the facts. So I don't think we'll ever definitively know that precise point. Yeah, I can be talked into. I have a hard time with it, but I can be talked into thinking that was not the very same Super Nintendo, because that's actually why I brought the point up. You know, I just I find it odd that somebody who has a less common Super Nintendo was also the same one that was used in the show. That that's a bit too much of a coincidence. But to then say that somebody who owns a Super Nintendo wouldn't recognize the connector to me is a bridge too far. I'm not going to say that's what you should say. I'm not going to say that's yeah. what the audience should say. But to me, that's the point where it's like I can't get on board with that anymore. Mm-hmm. And. Um- uh, and readers will have different opinions on that depending on, you know, the way their brain works, I guess. Uh, the facts are all there and you can make of them what you will. And, and there's a couple of details like that where you'll never definitively know or never be 100% sure you're getting a truthful answer. But there are some things, lots of things in the book where, you know, yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> so, so I wanted to get off mic for a minute there. We have a... This is almost five years in the past at this point. Um, I don't recall any major activity on this story since uh, Mike took... He had a brief stint on Patreon with his magazine, and then he tried a couple things with it. But but the Caligo Chameleon is a long, dead story at this point. Why are you getting into the book now? What was your motivation? Um, well, it's not like I've just got into it now, to be honest. This thing was an absolute monster to write. Um and for a while, it put me off ever doing a project like this again. It took me from start to finish two years, um, including research and writing, to get to what I thought was a finished product. So that it took me two years. Um, it's kind of been on a back burner now simply because of the way the world is at the moment. And, you know, I've had quite a few changes in life as well. You know, I've gone through a big house move, gone through various other things personally, and now we're in the middle of a an alleged pandemic we won't go down that road but um and so the book has been basically finished for around a year i would say and that's 
um, so it, it's not like I've just decided to sit down after five years and write it. And and when I started writing it, it was probably to late 2016 into 17. And I didn't sit down and think, and the foreword uh, in the book will outline this. I didn't sit down with the intention of writing this book. There were lots and lots of um, videos, mainly on YouTube, from people on the outside saying this is happening, that's happening. And none of it was, well, I can't say none, but a lot of it wasn't wasn't right. It was just incorrect. And so I wanted to get a kind of definitive version of events based on facts. You know, a lot of people were interested in the story and they deserve to have the correct uh, version of the story so I wanted to do that but I didn't want to just write a dry factual book full of technical information and you know dates and times and who said what and who did this and who did that it it would have been boring to write and even more boring to read so I just sat down wrote a couple of chapters planned a few little things out of a basic book structure and I left it maybe a week or two, went back to it, read through what I'd done, and I thought, you know what, there's there's kind of an angle that I've missed here. There's a human story in here, and it's the human story of Mike. I know you wanted to get off Mike, but he is a key element no, no, to okay. this. Um, there is a human story. You know, the guy was doing good uh, work for the community and kind of got lost along the way, and we can all learn lessons from that. And it's... It, it follows his rise and fall, as, as the name suggests, and the human story. And so I'm hoping uh, that, you know, people outside the video game community from, can get something from it. You know, it covers some technical information. It covers some business um, information. Uh, but at the heart of it, it is a human story. And I think people will, in those early chapters, quite like Mike Kennedy. I think they will. You know, I did for a long mm -hmm. time. You know, did the show with him for, I think, seven years, something like that. Uh, yeah, 2009 to 2000, end of 2015. And so I did like him. And, you know, he was a friend. He was a, a great, fun person to hang out with. And that changed. <laughs> and you'll go through that story with him and see where he ended up. Uh, but... Um, it does continue kind of after the chameleon as well, because there was a whole lot of mess to clean up after that. You know, by the time the console project was dead, Mike owed family members, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. You know, he'd, he'd been into his 401k. He'd missed mortgage payments. Um, he had a yacht, a small yacht uh, that he kept um, in uh, L.A. near his home. He had to sell that. He had to move house out of state. Uh, went back to live near Trisha's family. So there's all the kind of the family side of it, you know, where Mike ended up and also what what happened to the rest of his empire. And there's a great uh, story in the book about his final dirty deed, if you like, when he was selling his empire. Of course, he sold most of it to uh, Eli from Pico Interactive, who um, appeared on our show at, at the time. Um, and that's where the phrase lawyers and showers came from. You know, that interview with Pico where Sean was spinning him yarn after yarn and, you know, telling him this com big, huge company you work for that had lawyers and showers. And so there's, there's all of that, you know, Mike's empire to clean up. And then we also cover some of the effect it had on Coleco after that, because Coleco, you know, made products after mm -hmm. um, they put their name on the chameleon, you know, could they, rescue their name or 
was that name forever tarnished. So it, it covers that as well. And of course, there was the Clico Expo. Uh, we cover that as well, um, which they did um, New Jersey, I think. And so we, we go into a little bit of that and kind of the after effects of, you know, being associated with Mike, if you like. That's I, I'm really excited about all this because I knew about 80 percent of what you talked about in this episode here. But the fact that the, I was involved in this tangentially and still didn't know about half of this stuff I was like, wow, I cannot wait to get a hold of this book. Can you describe the Kickstarter? Tell me how I can do get in touch with this. Uh, yeah. So the Kickstarter will go live at any moment. Um, hopefully in the next day or two. I'm not sure when this uh, episode will come out, but it, it may well be live when the time it does. And it will. The, so, okay, so the book is written. The book's finished. There are some legal questions because I've got some evidence in the book and uh, a couple of other minor points we don't need to get into. But, you know, I just want to make sure that none of this book is actionable, although everything in there can be backed up and proven true. Um, I can tell you, you know, why the law is such an ass. Let's have some evidence that it's argued legally I shouldn't have. Someone's given me that evidence and I put it in the book. Um, let's say Mike or Sean Robinson could get lawyered up and come after me and say that shouldn't be in the book. Uh, that's not true or this aspect is not true. And I can say, well, it is true. Here's the evidence I've got to prove it. But because I shouldn't necessarily have that evidence, that's not admissible in court necessarily. So, although I could prove everything I say in the book, I may not be able to represent everything that I've got uh, in a court of law. Now, it does depend on the state in the US and um, it does depend on the country. But technically, I could be sued in a state that um, will not allow me to do that. The book will be published in the UK. It's largely aimed at a US audience because that's where most of the events happened, but uh, it will be published in the UK. So I just need to answer those legal questions. So what will happen is we're doing a Kickstarter to raise the funds for those legal fees. It's a fairly low number. It's £1,400. That's it. Um, I've got an estimate from a lawyer. I've chosen the lawyer. We've had conversations and we're at a point now where he said, OK, send me the money. I'll do the work. And so we're raising that money. So hopefully the funded. I send the lawyer that money. He's estimated two to three weeks to get back to me. I would estimate another two weeks after that for me to go through the manuscript again and finalize it. And then we send it off to the publisher. So um, although there is you can never say there's no risk in backing this Kickstarter, it is negligible. The book is written, <laughs> you know, it, it is it's finished and has been for some time. So it will start any day. Like I said, it will hopefully finish uh, the end of October. And then we're looking at a few weeks then, maybe four or five weeks till I can send the finished manuscript to the publisher and get it out there. I'm the, definitely down for the book. Are there any extra tiers or extra little perks on there that I could definitely pitch in a couple extra perks for? And so, yeah, we're, again, just finalizing some of those perks. Um, there is obviously the minimum one pound where we say thank you very much and you don't get anything. And the increases Kickstarter perks like to do. Um, and they go up to, you know, you'll get a digital copy of the book. Um, you'll get three digital copies. You'll get um, 
some artwork uh, we have him done by uh, an artist called Simon Butler you may or may not know him he worked for Ocean Software for many years uh, a couple of times actually and he produces pixel art so you can buy some of his artwork it will be signed we're doing some t-shirts and things like that and the top tier will even include a dinner with me when mutually convenient so if you're in the UK when we can meet up we will meet up if you're in the US you know I travel over there uh, when we're allowed to anyway to go to expos so if we are in a convenient place at a convenient time I will take you out to dinner you're not talking about any low serial numbers, different colored cases? <laughs> no, we're not talking that at the moment. And so what um, I ideally wanted to do, see, my plan was we go straight for a printed copy of the book and we take them to Expo, sell them and sign them. Well, that's not happening this year. It's not happening the first half of next year, probably. So this book sat around for long enough. As you said, it goes back to 2015. So because of where we are, Let's just get it out there, get the book out there, get the information out there. Let's go digital. And when we're at a stage where we can start going to expos again, if the demand is there, we'll produce a physical book and we'll do what I said. I'll take boxes of them to expos, sign them and sell them. Uh, but the top tier does include some um, printed to order uh, physical copies of the book. Because, you know, you made the joke there about low serial numbers and, and coloured versions and all of that. But... A lot of the people who read this book are collectors and want something to put on the shelf. And I want to give them something to put on the, on the shelf. It's just that's not kind of where the world is at the moment, unfortunately. Well, I will definitely take a look at that. And you will have a, a pledge from me, too. Mike, I'm going to make extensive show notes for this episode because there's a lot more detail in this than in a lot of the other episodes I've done. So anybody wants some links, check out AaronBossig.com. Mike, where can people keep track of you aside from the project? So the website for the project is, um, we'll give those out first and then a couple of others. Uh, the site for the project is calicochameleon.org. There's a great story in the book about how we came to own that URL and Twitter name. You can read all about that. Um, the, the Kickstarter, because we don't have a final URL yet, I've put a redirect on that website. So it's calicochameleon.org slash Kickstarter. Go to that URL when the project's live. It will take you straight to it. And also you can catch up with me and my current co-host, ex excluding Mr. Kennedy, at the Retro Gaming Roundup podcast, which is RetroGamingRoundup.com. We put out a monthly podcast. We've never missed February 2009. We've even thrown some extra shows in there. And if you're looking for a, a lot of content, you know that show is five, six hours every month. And we discuss lots of different aspects of uh, retro gaming, as the name would. Mike, I got to say, I am a big fan of that podcast as well. I do listen to it now and then. Uh, that's actually probably one of the few retro gaming podcasts I do listen to. So I'm going to make sure all that goes in the show notes. Mike, thank you so much for doing this and great luck on the book. Thank you very much. Uh, you're very welcome. And thank you for having me on and giving me the chance to get the information out there. I appreciate all right. it. All right. Take good care, buddy. And you. Thanks. I would like to thank UK Mike for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. For the community building part of the show today, I want to swing back to a, one of my favorite tips, using the share button on your cell phone in order to send an episode you like to somebody else. The share button is usually a square button with an up arrow on it, which you can use to 
text it to anybody you like. But I'm going to take that a step further. If you hit that button and you have the Pinterest app included on your phone, you can actually post that as a pin directly to your Pinterest account. And truth be told, Pinterest is a very powerful way of reaching out to people politely and showing them something they may be very interested in. So if you were to post episodes of this show to your Pinterest page, I would appreciate that. And that can be the audio version that you can find on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or the YouTube version as well. Don't forget, we are syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a fantastic podcast network. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.